So uh, last week, Phil was speaking about Abraham and Isaac, about trust and obedience and the provision of God, about going along with what God says, about acting in faith. And we are going to continue to think about faith this morning, which is particularly necessary in the light of our ever-growing and developing vision. I showed someone around the house during the week. We all wore three hard hats, Martin. Um, somebody who's not connected with church, our church, or any other church. And uh, he said as we were going around, uh, what everyone says, which is, it's much bigger than it looks on the outside. <laughs> yes. He said, your vision is really ambitious, isn't it? I said, we never have problems with ambitious vision. But he was super excited he thought it was amazing. You know, that is where our faith is called to be active at the moment in terms of potentially personnel, opportunities, finance, and the impact, most importantly, of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is faith? What is faith? Well, there's all sorts of definitions of faith. Most people outside of the church think that it's pretty much like jumping off into a chasm and hoping for the best. Well, I don't think that's what faith is, scripturally uh, speaking. And Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 gives us a great definition. It says this, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Well, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful definition. It's a great verse to learn. And then you go, well, what does that mean? How can we be sure of what we hope for? Is that not a contradiction, a tension? How can we be certain of what we do not see? That doesn't add up, does it? Because we don't see it, so how can we be certain? How do we understand what faith is worked out? How do we clarify what faith really looks like? Well, this morning, we're not even just simply going to talk about faith, as if that would be difficult enough. We are going to talk about this ridiculous faith. Ridiculous faith. You see, the word ridiculous comes from the Latin verb. And the Latin verb means to laugh. To laugh. You're not talking about faith that is stupid or even absurd. We are talking about faith that maybe you laugh at because, wow, it's amazing. Or maybe makes you laugh because it's trans transforming. Ridiculous faith makes us say, wow, really? That's amazing. Ridiculous faith makes us smile and laugh and fills us with joy. Could you do a bit of that? Okay, I'm, do you want to sing the last song? A bit of faith that makes you smile. A bit of faith that makes you laugh. A bit of faith that makes you stand back in wonder and go, that is truly astounding. You know, our church is built upon that kind of faith. The kind of faith that Phil was mentioning last week when they built this building and on the final night, they still didn't have the money. And in that last meeting, God provided through the people it's the same kind of faith that allowed us to appoint Phil. It's the same kind of faith that allowed us to start a cap debt center when we had neither personnel nor money. 
You know, God is working through ridiculous faith. He has been. It's just that we've got acclimatized to it. (laughs) Faith that makes us go, wow, I only need to tell our church's story to other people. And they go, wow, that's amazing. This is ridiculous faith. And in a moment, we're going to focus a bit on the story of the prophet Elisha, because truly his is a story of ridiculous faith. But actually, you know, the Bible is full of stories of ridiculous faith, faith that makes you laugh. Most of them are mentioned in Hebrews 11. What about Noah? Let's start with him, shall we? He lives in the middle of a huge plain, a desert. There is not one single cloud in the sky. God says, Noah, get your toolbox. I want you to build a gigantic boat. And when you've done that, I would like you to collect two of every animal that lives in the world. Unfortunately, he also collected spiders. And put them in the ark. Is that not ridiculous faith? The people around him laughed. They pointed at him. They laughed at him. What are you doing, Noah? But then one day, the floods came. And Noah's ridiculous faith wasn't quite so ridiculous anymore. Because he acted on what God had revealed to him He acted in faith. Or what about Abraham and Sarah that Phil mentioned last week? In their old age, God said to them, by the way, guys, you're going to have a baby, and he's going to become the father of all nations. Sarah actually laughed. But when Isaac was born, they called him Isaac, because it means laughter. Because God demonstrated his ridiculous faithfulness to our faith. Or maybe you want to think about Moses gets to the Red Sea, whole two million people with him. God says, raise your stick and the sea will part. Well, I went to France this year. We did not do it that way. It would have been cheaper. We did not get to the English Channel. I did not raise a stick. The sea did not part. We got on a ferry. That's what normal people do. But God said to Moses, I want you to express faith that makes people laugh. And they walked through the sea, and at the other end, Miriam wrote a song celebrating what God had done. Well, let's take Joshua. Well, we're coming against this fortified city with our whole troops here. And God says to Joshua, take the worship band, walk around seven times, and then blow the trumpets. The walls will fall down. Is that not just ridiculous? Is that not funny? If you were inside for seven times whilst they walked around with the worship band... Would you not have laughed? But God's word came to pass as the walls came tumbling down and they took over the city. Or maybe there's Gideon, the least member of the smallest clan of the smallest, least tribe of Israel. And he's fighting the Midianites. He's got 3,000 people. And God says to him, take them to the river. Those who drink with their hands, take them. Those who lap like dogs, leave them behind. Gideon says to God, I've only got 300 left. Can we not do it the other way around? (laughs) And then God says, well, you know, for your weapons, I'd like you to take a pot and a torch and a trumpet. He's quite keen on trumpets, you find. Go up against the Midianites. They overthrew the Midianites. Is that not ridiculous? Does that not just make you laugh? That God can take an army of 300 people with a pot and a torch and a trumpet and defeat the enemy. And then there's Daniel and his friends who find themselves in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon. 
And Daniel thinks, hmm, how are we going to deal with this one? I know what, we'll become vegetarian. That's, you know, what is all that about? You know, Elisha's story fits perfectly in the way that God seems to operate with his servants and his friends. God seems quite happy with ridiculous faith. So this story is perhaps the most familiar of the Elisha stories. We have Naaman, who seems like a pretty decent guy, actually. The king, uh, sorry, the captain of the armies of Aram, modern-day Syria. Valiant, faithful, outstanding, but he has leprosy. A disease that's going to isolate him and alienate him and eventually make him incapable of fulfilling his role. And so he's desperate. And then his family is an Israelite slave girl. She's been captured, yet she still wants to help the family. Says something about them, I guess. And she says, well, there's a guy in Israel. He probably can help you. And so Naaman goes to the Syrian king and he says, this is what I've been told. And the Syrian king, of course, doesn't listen properly and says, okay, I'll write a letter to the king of Israel and I'll send you there with lots of money and camels and stuff. And so Naaman turns up at the king of Israel's palace and the king of Israel tears his robes. He's like, oh, blooming heck, I don't know how to do this. I can't heal leprosy. But Elisha hears and he sends word Send Naaman to me. And so the commander of all the armies of Aram turns up at the door of Elisha's house and Elisha does not even go to the door. He sends a messenger. The messenger says, tell him to wash in the Jordan River seven times and then he'll be fine. Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, Naaman's not best pleased about this. He is really furious. It wasn't his plan. And he says, if I'm going to wash in the river, the ones at home are cleaner. It wasn't his plan. And it dented his pride. Because he thought he was more important than that. He thought he was least important enough for Elisha to come to the door. And he had some very wise servants, didn't he? And brave. They said, excuse me, if he'd asked you to do something greater, would you not have done that? Don't you want to be clean? And Naaman, to be fair to him, says, you know what, you're right. And he goes and washes in the river. You see, this crazy faith that Elisha had and that he was expressing to Naaman did not arise out of nothing. Elisha has been learning God's ways. Elisha has been learning what faith looks like when it's worked out in practice. Elisha knows that the faith that we have in God does not necessarily take our plans into consideration. Eek. And it certainly does not concern itself with our pride. Our status what we think is really, really important. Faith demands stuff of us that allows us to lay down our plans and our pride and trust in God himself. And so we're going to have a race through Elisha, and it's going to be really fun because the story's a fab. And we're going to learn the lessons that Elisha has learned before he gets to this place where he says to Naaman, go wash in the river seven times. So are you ready? Bible to hand. Elisha has learned 
about faith. He's learned about listening to God. He's learned about trusting his word. He's learned about obeying him regardless. And this starts right at the beginning with his calling, his significant defining moment in his journey of faith. And I just want to read to you a couple of verses from 1 Kings 19. So it says this, so Elisha went from there and fa- sorry, Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak round him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. Two really, really important lessons that Elisha learned at this point. The first one is this. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. How many of you like to have everything sorted out and in order before you do anything? All the I's dotted, all the T's crossed, everything researched and thought through and sorted and organized and planned and you know the end point, not just the beginning. Elisha learns that you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Elijah came up to him, threw his cloak around him. Elisha understood what that meant. Elijah wanted him to come with him and be his servant, perhaps to learn with him. But that was it. He didn't know anything else. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what he was going to be doing. He didn't know how he was going to provide for himself. He knew nothing else. He just knew that he must obey. And that is the reality, isn't it? We don't get it totally at any point. Actually, even when we think we have, we haven't. But we don't see the full picture. We can't. It doesn't always all make complete sense. Elisha was minding his own business, getting on with his day, plowing his field. Suddenly, Elijah comes along. His whole life has changed. He didn't understand it, but he obeyed. And I think that our tendency is to go, why, what, where, when, how? To the point in which sometimes we are not obedient when God just says, do it. Just do it. He came up with that first, by the way. Just do it. We don't need to understand everything entirely. And this for Elisha is a complete break with the past. He let go of it all to follow. You know, when he set fire to his plowing equipment and roasted his oxen, he got rid of everything. His whole means of livelihood and work. This was a really clear break with what had been. He said, can I go say farewell to my parents? Elijah goes, of course you can, it's fine. We just get the sense here that for Elisha, this was a proper farewell because he didn't know where he was going or if he was coming back. We don't know if he came back again. It's not really the point, but he knew that he needed to leave everything in order to go forward. And it seems from Scripture, doesn't it, that those God uses the most are those who hold on to the least. 
Those God uses the most are those who hold on to the least. You know, this is not necessarily about giving up everything. That's not God's call to everybody. It isn't necessarily about being foolish. It's something about a state of heart, isn't it? A mind. It's a willingness to hold things light for the sake of the kingdom of God. And our inclination is to hold things tight for our own well-being. And the challenge of Elisha is to hold things light, not tight, for the sake of God and his kingdom. Because those who hold things light, whom God can say, so we're moving now, we're moving on, we're letting go of this, we're changing this, we're giving this, he can use for the sake of his kingdom much more easily than those of us who are clinging hold really tight, which is our inclination, I think. Total willingness to surrender everything for the sake of the kingdom. And that is between us and God and in our hearts. It is a word that God speaks to us about what's in our hearts, about how we respond to him. So after this story, if we turn over to 2 Kings chapter 3, here we have a longer story. Three kings come together. And uh, they make an alliance. There's Joram, Jehoshaphat, and Jeroboam. So that's easy to remember, isn't it? And they come together in an alliance, and they say to each other, let's fight against the king of Moab. So they get themselves together with all their troops and all their animals, and they start marching across the desert towards Moab. And then they realize that the person ordering supplies has got it a bit wrong, and they've run out of water. They have no water to drink, no water for their animals, no water. And therefore this campaign is going to fail because they have no water. Jehoshaphat thinks to himself, maybe if we bring the prophet along, he can ask God what we need to do. Maybe if we bring the prophet along, he can ask God what we need to do. You know, When we are in great need, it drives us to depend on God, doesn't it? Because we cannot depend on ourselves anymore. When we are in great need, it actually can become a blessing to us because it drives us to depend upon God. Many of you will know that over these past weeks, two of my close friends, especially one of them, have died And those people have been very influential to me in my walk with God and my life. And I feel sad, because that's normal. And in that time, I found myself just spending a bit more time in solitude, just with God, because I don't quite know what to do with that, so the best place to do it is with God, and to be close to him. The amount of money we need for refurbishing the building next door does never keep me awake at night because it's too much. Therefore, it's not worth keeping awake at night. But it is worth depending on God. And as our need drives us to depend on God, then it becomes a blessing, doesn't it? Because we spend time with God. We listen to God. He provides for us. We have stories of his faithfulness and his mercy. And that becomes the greatest blessing of all. And Jehoshaphat knew that. He thought, let's go to God. 
Let's go to God. And so they called Elisha, and Elisha said, bring the harpist. I don't know where the harpist was on the battlefield, but anyway, bring the harpist. And whilst the harpist played, he listened to God. And this is what it says from verse 15. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, this is what the Lord says, make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. It's a harpist, thank you. (laughs) This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also have Moab over to you. Okay, so let's just take a moment, shall we? Here's the kings, here's all the troops, here's the animals, they're in the desert. The hot sun is blaring down upon them. They have no water. Elisha says, God says, dig some ditches. Really? Really? How is that going to help? How is doing manual labor in the desert, in the hot sun, going to help? They are just going to be more dehydrated with a greater need for water. How is that going to help anything at all? Elisha says, this valley will be filled with water. There's not a cloud in the sky. Actually, there never is. It's easy for God. Really? You know, Only God can send the water, but sometimes he needs us to dig a ditch. Only God can send the water. We we don't know how it happens. We don't know whether they dug so deep the water came up during the night. We, We don't know. We don't know whether it was just plain miracle. The ditch is filled with water. Frankly, it doesn't matter. God said dig ditches, and the next morning it was full of water. But sometimes God needs us to dig the ditches, and sometimes that doesn't seem like the most obvious thing to do. It may even seem counterintuitive. So what ditch is God asking of us? Us individually, us together, what ditch is he asking us to dig? What is his revealed wisdom to us? And I encourage and challenge you, whether you listen to a harpist, Gregorian chants, Bethel, Hillsong, Matt Redmond, or even Graham Kendrick, to spend some time in the presence of God, worshipping him, focusing on him, and allowing him to reveal to you what he is saying to you. And that's what we are calling you to do on Wednesday, the 26th of September, 8pm, in case you missed that. To come together, to spend time in the presence of God, and to listen to him and ask, what is he saying to us? It's easy for God to provide water. Real faith believes big, but is willing to start small. Real faith believes big. I don't think we have a problem with the big, actually. We're quite good at that. But we have to start small with the things that God has called us to. And already there's a trickle, isn't there? I don't think we've got full ditches yet. We've maybe got like a little few millimeters in the bottom. There's a trickle because God calls us to start small. I think it's in Zechariah that it says, do not despise the day of small things. 
Let's do the things that God calls us to do, whether or not they are small. Let's depend on him. Maybe it'll seem strange. Maybe it'll seem ridiculous, laughable. Maybe it'll even seem insignificant. But do the thing that God says to you. And if you're not sure, and often this is wise, talk to someone that you respect. And together discern what God is saying. Not all of us are Elisha. And then he continues to another story, 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditors coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, go round and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons, pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her. She kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. He replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. You know, when we don't have what we really want, then God is what we really need. Because actually, this is not about the house or a vision or our church or whatever. This is about God. It always must bring us back to him because otherwise we've lost sight of the main thing. The main thing is the Lord himself. Whatever it is, we need to be driven back to God above all. What do you do when you don't have much? It's a good question for us at the moment, isn't it? What do you do when you don't have much? Well, this story of Elisha reminds us that we need to stop waiting for what we want and start with what we have. Start waiting for what we want and start with what we have. I don't quite exactly know what that looks like. You see, he said to her, what have you got? And she said, your servant has nothing at all. That was her instinctive response. Your servant has nothing at all. Then she said, except a little oil. It's like it suddenly dawned on her that she didn't have nothing at all. She just didn't quite have what she wanted. We need to start with what we have. And then he said to her, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. And that's really challenged me, actually, over these past couple of weeks. That actually there is a time when we need to ask the neighbours, whether literally or metaphorically, we need to ask the neighbours. We don't, we don't have enough jars. So we need to engage with other people. We need to ask for their jars. We need to ask for their help. We need to not be independent but actually ask for help. And actually, there's been some fun things going on the last couple of weeks, and we'll tell you about them soon, where actually God has surprised us with help from our neighbours, from people we weren't expecting. Because we've said, we need some help, please. Can you help us? And I've said, oh, well, yeah, we could actually. We could help you. And that's really thrilling, isn't it? Because other people get involved in the ridiculous faith of God. And they get to say, wow, that's amazing. And I was part of that. We offer God what we have. 
and we trust him to give us what we need. We can't offer him what we don't have. goes without saying, doesn't it? We offer him what we have, and we trust him to give us what we need. Verse 6 says that she carried on pouring this small bit of oil until every jar was full. And when she sent her son to get another jar, there were no more jars. It just carried on going. And I guess everyone was blessed, because I'm sure she shared it with everybody in the village. Said, you know, you take a jar of oil. You take a jar of oil. You take a jar of oil. God worked to provide for everyone. Who do we need to ask? Who do you need to ask? What ridiculous and brave conversation do you need to have? Who is your neighbor? Who might provide some pots? This can't just be about me or Phil or whoever. It's, it's all of us. Who is our neighbor in this story? What do we have? What is God asking us to give? Who do we need to help us? You know, we need a bit of a perspective change, don't we? I think sometimes we are wired in 21st century Britain with its postmodern secular thinking structure. Sometimes we need a bit of a different perspective. And Paul offers us that. 1 Corinthians, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Weakness of God is stronger than men. We think we're so wise, actually. We can think so clearly. We can be logical and sensible and read and research and know everything. Our plans and our schemes and our strategies and our way of thinking are so wise, isn't it? But you know, Paul says that even the wisest of wise, even the greatest wisdom ever known, God's foolishness is wiser than that. Who would ever have imagined that the cross would be the way to salvation? Who would have ever imagined that God giving his only son to die on a cross, a Roman torture instrument, to go to hell, would ever be the way to conquer sin and death and Satan and hell and give life for all eternity? Who would ever have imagined But God's foolishness is wiser than ever our wisdom is. That if we want life, it is through the cross. And sometimes we have to lay down our own wisdom in order to accept and pick up the wisdom of God. We need to make that switch in our thinking from wisdom to wisdom. Because sometimes we're a bit dumb. Sometimes we're weird or wrong. Sometimes we have embraced the wisdom of this world over and above the wisdom of God. And I'm not going to read all of this to you, but in James chapter 3, it talks about the contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And frankly, if you read that, you will want the wisdom of God because the way of the kingdom is always the wisest way to live. And Jesus in the Beatitudes turns everything on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's not the right way around, is it? Blessed are those who mourn, really, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Wisdom or wisdom? 
Which is your preference? Which is your choice? Which way will lead to life? And this is an upside-down kingdom that we live in. It's the kingdom where Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? We spend most of our lives accumulating, holding on tight, protecting ourselves, making our security, don't we? That's because that's what we're told to do. It's how we're wired. Jesus says, what's the point of all that? If you don't have the life of God living in you, if it's not for something that will last for eternity, if it's not worth more than our 70 years or whatever on this earth, Jesus challenges us to lay down our lives because the rest of our life will be so much better if we choose that way. Because the way to life is through the cross. Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. He says in Matthew chapter 23, the greatest among you must be your servant. It's his upside down kingdom. He says, freely you've received, therefore freely give. Everything's come without cost to you. The grace and mercy of God. So give. And this fantastic verse in Luke chapter 6, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds like your favorite milkshake multiplied a hundred times. When I was at Spring Harvest this year, in the, in, I went on the, thankfully on the final day because I, my waistline would have been bad if I'd gone on the first day, and got the most amazing raspberry sorbet milkshake you have ever tasted in your entire life. And, uh, and she made it for me in the liquidizer and she poured it into the glass and it poured down the side of the glass and I carried it and it poured all over my hands and it stuck everywhere to the chair and everything. I was covered in and outside with raspberry sorbet milkshake. It was a wonderful experience. The word of God challenges us, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. What kind of ridiculous faith is God asking of you? Not stupid, reflective, coming out of time in the presence of God, like it did for Elisha, revealed something that he is clearly saying to you, to us as a church. Faith that makes you and other people smile. Faith that makes us laugh. I loved our AGM when we all lost the plot because it's the work of God that makes us laugh, that fills us with joy. What kind of faith is God asking of you as an opportunity for him to display his generosity and grace and glory? We're going to spend a bit of time worshipping and it's also communion together this morning. So I'm going to ask Phil if he'll just lead us for a couple of moments.